Kings, open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Hebrews, and we find ourselves this morning in chapter 6. Now, we covered this chapter, it's an entirety on Wednesday. Spent a lot of time in that first part of it, dealing with that third warning that the author gives to the readers. But I want to focus on the latter part of this chapter here, and I really want to focus on verse 18 and 19. However, to keep it in context, I'm going to read 17 this morning, but for the most part, the study is going to be just focusing on verse 18 and 19. It says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. It opens up very basically God wanting to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. We're seeing that within this verse 18 says by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. Talks about two things that are immutable, two things that are unchanging, two things that can't change. And I think a good way to kind of keep this into context. Now, if you look to scholars, they have a whole lot of things of what these two immutable things are. I think that when you take a look at verse 13, as God is speaking to Abraham, where we we can kind of see what these things are. In verse 13 here, Hebrews chapter 6, when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. So we see that we see God makes a promise then he swears an oath to that promise. And that's kind of what we see here in verse 17, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise. Again, those that have received the promise, the immutability of his counsel, he's promised something is going to stand, something is going to happen. And then he says he confirms it by an oath. So although there are many things about God that are unchanging, there are two immutable things that the author begins to point out, and that is that God makes a promise, and then God confirms that promise with an oath. Now, God could just make a promise, and that is never going to change. God can confirm it with an oath. Well, when he does that, you've now just taken one layer upon another layer as far as this is something that you can anchor yourself to This is something that is going to be absolutely unchanging. And on top of that, verse 18 says that by these two immutable things, and then he says, in which it is impossible for God to lie. Now, when God makes a promise, he's not going to lie. It's his promise. The same thing that he did through Abraham, where in verse 13, God made this promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater. He swore by himself saying, surely in blessing, I will bless you and in multiplying, I will multiply you. So of course, that's a quote from Genesis chapter 22, um, verse 17. And as we, we see this here, God is going to make this 
promise and he's going to swear by an oath. And that promise that we have, of course, is that life in Jesus Christ. And there's an oath that comes with this. But he makes this statement that by these two immutable things, by the promise and by the oath that he declares of the promise, that we might have a strong consolation. That we can have this strong comfort, we who have fled for refuge, to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. Now, within this area of, he talks about fleeing for refuge, laying hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope, he says in verse 19, we have as an anchor of the soul. So we're looking at a couple things that sort of stack on one another. We're looking at God's promise. We're looking at his oath. We're looking at the fact he doesn't lie. And he says this is a consolation. We can find comfort. He also says that this is a refuge, a place that we run to, and an anchor, a place that holds us. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on a boat that didn't have an anchor. Now, if you're on a boat that doesn't have an anchor, there's a reason that boats have anchors. One, it keeps you in one place. It just really does, and it works well. Now, if your anchor isn't deep enough, and all of a sudden you let down your anchor, you're still going to drift, you're still going to go. The key being on anchors is anchors are really needed, especially in storms. And when you have a storm, you want an anchor. When you have wind that's trying to push you off course, it's, it's really good to say, just I need to just anchor down here, solidly hold myself there. And he says this hope we have is an anchor. So it locks us in, it keeps us stable, but there's a bigger promise that comes because it says in verse 18, we have this consolation who have fled for refuge. I want to develop that a little bit this morning. We have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope, of course, being the anchor. What is a refuge? A refuge is a place of safety, a place of security. And in the Old Testament, there is a promise that God makes to the children of Israel and a directive that he makes to them that he wants them to set up something known as a city of refuge. There's three places in the Old Testament that it's taught on and built upon and layered upon. The first is found in Numbers chapter 35. The second is found in Deuteronomy 19. And then, of course, Joshua chapter 20. And we're going to focus our study on just those promises and the directives that God kind of clarifies there through Joshua. But let me give you the foundation of what this city of refuge is, initially found in Numbers chapter 35. I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 15. I'm going to start again in verse 22 to verse 28. But in Numbers 35, beginning in verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. 
They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And of the cities which you give, you shall have six cities of refuge. And you shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, and three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which will be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger, and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. So we see here what these cities of refuge are. If something happened where you killed someone accidentally, you didn't mean to, but you did kill someone accidentally, someone dies, and it wasn't intentional, you weren't trying to do this, but it did happen, and there are times accidents do happen. And if an accident happens, well, you know what happens, that even if the person is, it's an accident, the relatives of that person want some kind of justice. They want some kind of judgment, some kind of peace, some kind of comfort. And of course, that comfort is what? I want the person who killed my uncle Grisha, I want him now to die. That's, that's all you want. And so you have this person who's a manslayer. He's not a murderer, he's a manslayer. In other words, someone does die. But when he dies, it's what? It wasn't intentional. It's almost as if when Jesus was there on the cross, he would have made this statement, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so you have the death of the son, the death of the son. And it was, you know, my sin, your sin. That's what drove him to the cross. Manslayers. And now what God could do as the avenger of the blood, as the nearest of the kin, the father saying, you're doomed, you're judged, and you're all judged guilty, and I want to just execute that vengeance on you. And so you have these things where God just institutes, for whatever reason, a city of refuge. I, I love the heart of this because for the most part, who would have thought about an unintentional killing? Well, God thought about an unintentional death. And if an unintentional death happens, these people who were the ones involved in the unintentional death, called the man slayer, not the murderer, but someone who slayed a man unintentionally, he can then go into this city of refuge. Now, within this city of refuge, we're going to see here that one of the keys that we're, we're going to look at is that within these cities of refuge, there are going to be three on one side of the Jordan, three on the other side of the Jordan. Because remember, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they didn't want to cross over. They wanted to stay there on that eastern side. So there would be three cities of refuge. Each one would be within a day's travel. So no matter where you were, you have one day to do this. Get all of your stuff before word gets out and before words get back to the relative, and you can hightail it to the city of refuge. And in that city, then, you would have security. You will have safety. It begins now in verse 22. However, 
if he pushes him suddenly without enmity. Now, he's been talking about if you do this, you're an actual murderer. You're, you're not a manslayer. But if you push him suddenly without enmity or throw anything at him without lying in wait. And so you're, you're not angry. You're not bitter. You're not vengeful. But all of a sudden, you know, you're just walking down the road and you say to your buddy, ah, you know, you're so silly. And you shove him in the arm. He trips over a rock. His head hits another rock. What happens? He dies. You're, you're now a manslayer. But you didn't hate him. He's your buddy. But yet the relatives are saying what? We need to wipe you out. We want to come and have this vengeance. So he makes that statement in verse 22. However, if he pushes him suddenly without enmity or throws anything at him without lying in wait or uses a stone um, by which a man could die, throwing it at him without seeing him so that he dies while he was not his enemy or seeking his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. So the city that he runs to, the elders there are going to hear the story of both of them. He's going to hear the story of the manslayer and hear that story of the near kin who wants judgment. He, of course, is known as the avenger of blood. Because I want to avenge my, my uncle Grisha here who died. In verse 25, so the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled, and he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But, verse 26, if the manslayer at any times goes outside the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of the city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood." because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. So what's happening? Accidentally, someone dies. You leave everything you have. You leave your inheritance. You leave everything. You flee to the city of refuge. You tell them the story. You tell them what happened. They realize, yes, you actually killed someone without intending to do so. You did kill someone. However, you can stay here and we will protect you from the avenger of blood. And so he cannot harm you. Why is this so important that here the author of Hebrews begins to make a reference to it? Well, I want to read a portion of Deuteronomy where here that passage is also referred to within this book of the second law, Deuteronomy. It opened up in verse 1. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 7 and then in verse 9. It says, When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses... You shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God has given you to possess. 
Now, notice what he says in verse 3. And I, I find that what we're going to see is that it just builds upon and builds upon and builds upon layer after layer how incredible Jesus Christ is because he is our refuge. In verse 3, it makes this statement, you shall prepare roads for yourself. I want you to see that these cities of refuge, as we're going to note here as we look to Joshua, that they are within a day's travel. So they're usually within about 20 miles out of any place that you would be living. Within 20 miles, you can get to that city of refuge. The beautiful thing about this city of refuge is what? Accessibility. How easy it is to get there. Notice here that God makes this statement. He says, you shall prepare roads. I don't want there to be any difficulty in getting to this city. I don't want any difficulty in getting to the refuge. God wants it easy. And I'll tell you what, he's made it so easy and so accessible to get to Jesus Christ. It doesn't take a long time to turn and come to Christ and say, I want to come to you. You are my refuge. You are the one that's going to watch over me and protect me. And so we see here and in verse 3 of Deuteronomy 19, it's the roads had to be built to these cities of refuge. Now, verse 2, you shall separate three cities for yourself. In the midst of the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess, verse 3, you shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts of the territory for your land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit that any manslayer may flee there. And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there that he may live. You have life but you have life only in this refuge. Once you leave that refuge, all of a sudden now you're taking your life in your own hands. You've left that place of security. And of course, Hebrews chapter six just happens to be warnings to those who are leaving that place of security. And within the warnings of Hebrews, we talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night, that there are five warnings that are given. And they escalate in severity. But the interesting thing about the warnings in Hebrews is this. And I found as I've been pastoring for a long time now that the warnings never bother anyone who is in a place of intimacy with Jesus Christ. They've never bothered anyone who's like, I'm just abiding in Christ. Wow, that's a good warning. People should listen to that. People should heed it. People should draw near. When you're not in a place of intimacy, I've had all kinds of people coming in panic. Oh, no, Pastor Lowell, I'm doomed. Well, here we see that if you come to this, there's a road that's there. And so beautiful, verse 4 says, this is the case of the manslayer who flees there, that he may live. Whoever killed his neighbor unintentionally, 
not having hated him in time past as when a man goes in the woods with his neighbor to cut timber and his hand swings a stroke with the axe and cuts down the tree and the head slips from the handle and it strikes the neighbor so that he dies and he, and he shall flee to one of these cities and live. Now it gives a really good example. You're cutting down a tree and as you're swinging back, you know, you did you know, tack on the head, the head falls off and hits Uncle Grisha. He now kicks the bucket, you know, so you flee to that city of refuge. Well, once you're there, verse 6, lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and kill him, though he was not deserving of death since he not hated the victim in time past. So you got two buddies, you know, chopping down a tree, accidents happen. And so when it does, the manslayer, he flees to the city of refuge. Why? Because the avenger of the blood, the, the near kinsman, his anger is hot. And he's not taking any time to cool down. And as he's now angry, it says you have to make sure because while his anger is hot, he's pursuing you swiftly. You want to make sure that it doesn't take a long time to get there. And God has made the access to Jesus so simple, like here, making roads, and it's so near. It's not like, oh, Jesus, you know, I've wandered from you for four years, so what do I do? Well, let's take two years and have you come back. I'll just cut the time in half. It'll be a lot easier. No, no matter how long you've walked away from the Lord, when you turn around, you realize he's right there. He's been pursuing you the whole time. It is quick and easy access to come into this place of refuge. And so we see here that now God makes a statement in verse 7 and 8. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. And so as he makes these three cities, he's talking about now cities that will be here in the land. In verse 9, he says, and if you keep all these commandments and do them, I will command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk always in his ways. Then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. So he started out with the six cities of refuge. And of course, then what happens? Well, you need them on the eastern side because Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they didn't want to come. Now, now that you have a foundation, and I know it's a long foundation to set up to, but I do long foundations. Let's turn to the book of Joshua. As you find yourself in Joshua chapter 20, I want to drop down initially to verse 7. Why? Because in verse 7, after he gives the understanding about the cities of refuge, he's going to say exactly where these cities were appointed. Now, to you, they're just going to be names. If you know of the cities, if you've been there to Israel, you're going to say, oh, I, I've been there. I know what this is. I've seen it. Um, you may have a better understanding, but I kind of want to develop it here this morning. So Joshua 20, verse 7 says, So they appointed in Kadesh in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron, in the mountains of Judah. 
These three cities of refuge that are there on the western side of the Jordan. The first one is there in Kedesh. Now, Kedesh, I want you to understand, is a mountain area in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Naphtali is. Then there's another one that's there in Shechem. Now, Shechem is in the middle of it, but it's also, if you read this, it's in the mountains of Ephraim. Now, one is in the mountains of Naphtali, one is in the mountains of Ephraim, and the other is in the mountains of Judah, which is Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron. All of them are located on mountains, or as we're going to see on the other side of the Jordan, the higher hills, the higher plateau. Now, why does God constantly want a city of refuge on a high mountain? One is that when you're heading there, you can always see it. You never take your eyes off of it. That's my refuge. That's my refuge. And he always puts it high so that you can always see where you're heading, where that refuge is. And every time that you're getting tired and you can look up and say, I'm a little closer. I'm a little closer. I'm almost there. So he puts the cities of refuge high. And I think it's important to note that not only does he say it's within 20 miles, so it is accessible, you can get there, but I'm always going to keep it in your vision. Always make sure that you see the city as you're heading towards that city. Now, in verse 8, it says, On the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. So you begin to see that the cities of refuge start in the Sea of Galilee. Then it goes to the center of Ephraim. It comes all the way down to Hebron on the southern end. It moves over then to the, um, to the tribe of Reuben over to Bezer. It goes up to Ramoth and Gilead and then in Gola, the Golan Heights up there again on the eastern side of the Jordan, but up by the Sea of Galilee. So you have these six cities of refuge, three on one side of the Jordan, three on the other. All of them are set up higher, either on a, on a plateau, on a high hill, on a mountain. And verse 9 says this, These were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them. So we begin to see that this is not only for the children of Israel, but also for the stranger, also for the sojourner. Someone who just comes in says, well, I'm not part of the family. He says, no, you can still come in. This is for you. You come in. You're part of this family. So we begin to see this incredible work that God is doing. And so initially, he gives the cities of Levites 48 cities for their inheritance. He says you can work around the cities. But six of these cities, very strategically located, you, the Levites, are going to ensure that anyone who has killed someone accidentally can come into this place of refuge. And within this place of refuge, we see there had to be roads going there. They prepared the roads. Um, And so 
They were built on high hills so that you could always see where you're going. And so that if you're seeking refuge, you have no problem knowing this is where my refuge is. The access is easy. Not only is the access easy, but let's begin now reading in Joshua chapter 20. And I want to develop just a couple of other things. The Lord also spoke to Joshua saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, appoint for yourselves cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. So not only did God speak to Moses saying, Moses, you need to set up these cities. He also then spoke through Joshua. He said, Joshua, what I spoke to Moses, you need to make sure that you do this. Verse 3, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, notice what this says. They shall take him into the city as one of them. Even if he's not a child of Israel, he comes as a sojourner, he takes him now, the city takes him in as one of them. You're now a part of this city, you're now a part of this family, and they take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. This is incredible. Not only do they say it's going to be a place of access, but then it's a place of abiding. It's a place where you now have a place. You can live here. You're not no anymore where you're coming to a place of strangers. You're coming to a place of instant family. You're going to come into the city as one of them. You're now a part of the city fully and completely. You now have a place that you can stay as you're there dwelling among them. So keep in mind, yeah, you're dwelling among the Levites, you're living in their cities, but now you're a part of who they are. And in this city of, of refuge, keep in mind, as it is a Levitical city, it is a place where what? The worshipers hang out. This is where those who initiate and lead and draw people into the worship of God, this is where they hang out. And so you're in this place, you're one of them, you're given a place that you can dwell. And so we see how beautiful it is that these cities of refuge actually speak of, one, accessibility, note that as you come to Christ, two, it speaks of an abiding that you now become a place where you can dwell and hang out and stay. And not only that, but it becomes a place of protection. Take a look at verse 5. Then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally and did not hate him beforehand. So you didn't hate your neighbor. It happened accidentally. But what we find is this. This city is going to protect you. They are not going to deliver the manslayer over to the avenger of blood. And I'll tell you what. 
that is my Jesus. He's going to say, my access is easy. Come in and abide and be a part of me. And know this, that in me, only in me, is there this security. And we understand that what? Well, we've talked about within these warnings that they bother people who are not intimate with the Lord, who aren't abiding with Christ. When you're not abiding close, all of a sudden these warnings, you panic. Well, here he says, and it's so beautiful, that when you're there in the city and you're hanging out in the city, there's safety within the city. However, within this area of having this, this protection, I want you to see here that there's a duration. There's a duration that comes with this city of refuge. It says in verse 6, And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, and until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house to the city from which he fled. So we see that as that manslayer leaves his inheritance, leaves his property, leaves everything that he does, he runs and he hides out in this city of refuge. And he now has a place. There was easy accessibility. There were roads. It was high. You knew where you're going. You're now here safely. You have a place and you're one of them. And you have this place now where they're keeping you safe. And you must stay there now until the death of the high priest. Now, why that's a rule, we don't know. Scholars try to figure it out. And I'll tell you what, everyone that I've read has just lost their marble somewhere. It just doesn't make any sense. All I know is it's what God said. You have to stay there until the death of the high priest. And once the high priest dies, then you can actually safely now go back into your land, go back to where you are, go back to where your inheritance was and say, this is my land, this is my property, I'm coming back here because the high priest dies. Now, once the high priest dies, the avenger of the blood is no longer, do they have any authority to kill you without them dying? Because if, if, they're, if they catch you before you get into the city, the avenger of blood, hey, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's what they believed in the Old Testament. They were considered guiltless. I'm the avenger of blood. I'm the one who's avenging my uncle. At this point, once the high priest dies, now you can safely and securely leave that city of refuge and go back to your place. What's interesting about the book of Hebrews is this, is we're about to discover, as we've had little tiny notes to it, but in the seventh chapter, we're going to see at the very end of chapter six that Jesus Christ is the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. It just so happens that our high priest died. And so we see him now as this type of refuge. I want to be in you and secure in you. But because you died, I have access here. I still have access to say, I can live my life. I can do the things that I did. But at the same time, there's this real beautiful direction to abide in Jesus Christ. 
He was still my access. He's my salvation. He's my refuge. I want to go to him. And so we see here, verse 6 once again, he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation of judgment until the death of the one who is the high priest in those days. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house to the city from which he fled. So we begin to see how there is this duration. The duration of being in the city of refuge is until the death of the high priest. At that point, then you are free to move on. Now, we did talk about this earlier, but I want you to see how inclusive this place is. We think that it's only for those who are good and only for those who are perfect or only for those it was an accident and only for those who are part of the family. Maybe there should only be a distinction. But again, in Joshua chapter or chapter 20, verse 9, these cities are appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwells among them. So we see here, that it's, it's really inclusive here to saying anyone who wants to come into these cities can come into the cities. However, although the cities are inclusive to those who come in, they're exclusive to saying that if you're not in the city, you're not saved. If you're not in the city, you don't have a place of protection. And I think this is where it's so important because we see here that in verse 5, if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck the neighbor unintentionally and did not hate him before. Now I'm going to take and I'm going to read a portion back in Numbers chapter 35 one more time. I'm going to read verses 25 through 28 just so you can understand how exclusive these cities are that you have to go in there and you have to remain. So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled and he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. Now verse 26 and here's the warning. But if the manslayer at any times goes outside of the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, so he just steps outside the city limits, and the avenger of blood, verse 27, finds him outside the limits of the city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood, Verse 28, because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. So we see here this beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ is. He is our refuge. He is the one that we seek. Now, there are two schools of thought, and I do want to share them both to you. One, as a high priest, that while Jesus was a high priest, he did die. There's another thought that is this, that Jesus began that ministry of the high priest as he rose from the grave. But at that point, he initiated the high priest. Well, if that's the case, then guess what? 
Our high priest will never die. So that means what? You don't ever leave. You're stuck here in the place of refuge forever and ever and ever. Well, I'll tell you what. If you're in Jesus, you're not stuck. You and I know that. But those are two schools of thought. One, you're free in Christ, and I love that idea. But two, depending on when he became the high priest, and Scripture's not clear, so everyone's speculating that depending on what you like, and you can choose one, the other, or both, and they both work perfectly well for me. I don't have a problem thinking he's my high priest. I just want to stay in him, never move. I do not want to leave the security that I have in him. Because as soon as you leave that city, you walk outside the refuge of that city limits. If the manslayer who's just waiting for you, waiting for you, waiting, sees you walk outside and he's now able to kill you and he's guiltless. He, he's not guilty of the blood because you left that place of refuge. So an understanding here what this refuge is what the refuge entails, how it talks about how easy it is to access, the, where it's, it's up on a hill, you're always seeing it, you know where it is, there's roads, you come in and you're a part of this. Come back now to Hebrews chapter 6. And let's take a look and put this foundation as an overlay here of verse 18. That by two immutable things, in other words, the promise that God gave. Now remember God told um, Abraham that in, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to multiply you. And so in, in me, you'll have these blessings. So God gives us now this incredible promise and an oath of what we have in Jesus Christ, life with him. Verse 18, by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie that we might have a strong consolation, a strong peace, a strong comfort who have fled for refuge to lay hope of the hope set before us. See, God set Jesus Christ as this hope. He is the refuge. And so we who now flee into Jesus Christ, we run to him we bury ourselves in him. He is our hope. He is the anchor. He is sure. He is steadfast. So we come now to him, the hope that is set before us. So God sets the work of Jesus Christ before every man, every man. And it's up to us saying, he's the refuge. He's the hope. He's it. Now it says in verse 19, this hope what is the hope, the security, the refuge, the safety that we have in Jesus Christ, we have as an anchor of the soul. In other words, my soul, the very core of who I am, is anchored in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Me believing the promise and the oath of God that he cannot lie, that I am absolutely safe and I will not die as long as what? I'm abiding in Jesus Christ. Now, this takes you to a whole other warnings to say what? Well, what if I was abiding and I left? What happens to the city of refuge then? Well, it said if you want to leave it, you do what? Be warned you're taking your life in your own hands. And so again, we see the security 
of the believer is one who's abiding and the insecurity of the one who does not abide. Now, the question is, are they saved and should they be worried or are they not saved and they should be worried? That's the question, isn't it? My question is this, why would you want to be worried? Don't worry about whether you're saved or unsaved. Worry about why am I worrying? I'm worrying because I'm not abiding in Christ. And I, I'm stressing this because I've talked to many people who when they read through these warnings, it doesn't shake them at all. There's not even a flinch in them. Like, oh, wow, that's a pretty cool warning. Hate to be that person. But the person who's not abiding, these warnings shake them up. The warning of what happens if I leave Christ? What happens if I leave this refuge? It's like, well, the warnings are there for a reason. Don't leave the city. There's security that's here always, always, always. The other blessing is if Jesus Christ is a high priest and he was high priest before he died and he died, you're secure if you drift. That's the blessing. But that, keep in mind, is what? Is a debate among those who say you're doomed or you're not doomed. I don't know how to play that one out because the scripture itself, these are what's known as minor doctrines. They're just hints to say these are truths. If you don't want to bury yourself in the minor doctrines, do this. Give yourself over to the major doctrine, abide in Christ. Just live with him in intimacy and in love and giving yourself over. Because he says this in verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. This amazing thing that as you find yourself abiding in Christ, what God says is this, you can be absolutely certain of your eternal security. As you abide in Christ, you are, should be absolutely certain. There's no one that can shake you, no one that can take you, no one that can, you know, God isn't going to push you out. All those things that we looked at the other week. And so we see here this incredible work of Jesus Christ. But it's the hope we have is what? When we flee into and abide in and stay in that place of refuge. So that's the hope we have. The abiding in Christ becomes the anchor of the soul. It becomes sure and steadfast. Why? Because I'm now there in Christ. But here's the beautiful thing is, if I'm in Christ, where's Christ? Do you understand if I'm in Christ, the key is now where is Christ? Well, here's the beauty of it. If you're in him, you're wherever he's at. And this is what it says is Jesus Christ. It's the anchor of the soul, the hope, that confidence of abiding in Christ is the anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. When you're secure in Christ, you're now there behind the veil. What is the veil and what does he mean? In the tabernacle and in the temple, there were two sections. There was a larger section called the holy place and a smaller section called the holy of holies. Now, within the larger section, there were only three things of furniture. There was this table of showbread. There was this lampstand, a menorah. 
and there was the altar of incense that was placed right there at the veil. And you would take some of the coals from the altar that was outside, place them there on that altar of incense. The priest would come and he'd sprinkle in these um, plants and it would create the smoke and it would be aroma coming up to God. And there was a very specific thing that he would place upon the coals as just this prayers of incense, and as the smoke would arise, you would know that you would rise. But then there's this veil. And that veil, scholars have somewhere between 15 and 18 inches thick. That's thick. That's a whole lot of curtain. And the reason they had it so thick was because behind that veil was this another room called the Holy of Holies. And in that room, only one article of furniture was there. It was the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where here, on that mercy seat, the high priest could, once he sacrificed an ox for himself one time a year, could go in behind that veil with this, you know, labor that would have smoke rising so he couldn't still see it clearly. He'd still see it, you know, through smoke. He can't see it perfectly. And he put blood on the horns of the mercy seat. And it would be for the atonement of the people. But you could only do that once a year. And if the people sinned the next week, it's like, sorry guys, we got a long wait ahead of us before I can get back in there again. And so we see here, it says there's a forerunner who'd entered in. And how beautiful this is, he is the presence behind the veil. So when Jesus died, you guys know as well as I do that the gospel writers say that the veil that was there in the temple was ripped. But it says this uniquely from top to bottom. They didn't rip from the bottom up, from the top to bottom. In other words, God's saying, here's the veil, it's ripped. In other words, the access is now made there. And Jesus Christ has now entered into the very presence behind the veil. In other words, he's there with the kabod. That, on top of the mercy seat, is where the very glory of God would dwell. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, we see that when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness, that there, coming from that Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, there would be this glory, the kabod, this light that would just shine through, this pillar of fire, that they would have fire at night. And a cloud would be there over the day. But that's where the glory of God would be. And this fire and this cloud would be always over there. But the high priest once a year could go in and actually see that tangible glory through the smoke. Jesus, if you're in him, you're secure from any wrongdoing that, that being a manslayer, killing someone not intentionally, Jesus dying for my sin and your sin, we're now in him. He says, I'm going to take you directly into this presence of the Father. How incredible is that? He takes us right into the presence of the glory of God and understand this. The access to the presence of the glory of God, we as Christians think, it's tough. It's tough to say, can I really get into the presence of the glory of God? Well, what was the access to the cities of refuge. It was easy access. It was always there where you could say, this is it. I'm going to set my eyes upon it. The roads are there. It made it so easy. 
God says, when you get into that land, you make roads, but you make roads into that city of refuge. That's the first thing you do. And when you look to infrastructure, it was infrastructure for what? For security, for safety. And so you see here that presence. God says, you have access and the access is easy. But can I stay there? Well, just take a look at where the cities of refuge is. When you get in the very presence of the glory of God, he says, you can abide here. You're one of them now. You literally have a place to dwell there, and you have this protection as long as you want. I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. And that protection for a Christian comes especially when we have someone who wants to slay us. He was a murderer from the very beginning. He was a murderer, and he's the enemy, and he's a liar, and he wants to destroy us. But in Christ, there's protection, and, and he wants to get us to flee or to wander, to do something away from the security we have in Christ, but the protection is there. And so when we're there with Jesus in the very presence of the glory of God, because it's his work, we have this access. This is the anchor. This is the hope. It is sure. It is steadfast. It's a promise of God. It's an immutable thing. It's a never-changing thing. Once you have this access with God, saying, it was easy access. I can stay here. I know I'm protected. And then what? I stay there as long as my high priest lives. And I'm going to be there forever and ever and ever with him because I'm entering in with Jesus behind the veil to the very glory of God. And note this, anyone can come. Anyone can come to the children of Israel and the sojourner and the stranger. Whoever says, I need to have the security, God says, come. Once you come, now you're part of us. Once you come, you'll have a place. This is the beautiful thing about the family of God. That you come in and all of a sudden it's like, well, I don't know these people, but you worship Jesus Christ. and like, wow, I know these people. It doesn't take you long to know them. And then the other problem is as you get to know them, then you realize what? Oh, not only are they Christians, but they're sinners. But then so am I. And we've been washed by the blood. And so we all come as those who are not worthy of this, all who need to enter in through this work of Jesus Christ. But we enter into that very present behind the veil. And this is Jesus. This is completely his work. And so we see that verse 20 says, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. And so we see here having become the high priest forever. So it does talk about there's a point in time where he did become the high priest. The argument is when. And of course, the scripture doesn't answer that when. People speculate to the when. I love it that it's a question mark. I do. Because to me, I'm most comfortable thinking I don't ever want to leave you. I just don't. I want my high priest to be alive forever and ever and ever and my security in you and my place in you and where your place is already behind the veil. Let that be our hope. Let that be our heart. Let your very soul anchor into this promise to say, I can access in to the work of Jesus Christ. 
and I have freedom to access in and easy access to access in and this permanence when I'm there. This is our hope. This is our anchor. This is our security. This is our refuge. This is our Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, Father, we do thank you for just this instruction. And Father, there's many things that we've already known that Jesus, this is you. This is the access. And we've just been reminded. And we thank you, Lord, for this reminder. How beautiful of a reminder it is that you would, through the very pages of Scripture, begin to make all of these types and shadows that will do one thing, will point to you, Jesus. And they will lead us into you. To be close to you and have intimacy with you and to abide in you. And so, Jesus, draw us to your heart. Draw us to this place. And through your spirit, you anchor us in. You knit us to yourself. Draw us to your heart. We ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen.